brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that sends 5% of your monthly plan price to your favorite charity. No contracts, nationwide coverage, risk-free guarantee. Learn more at CharityMobile.com. We continue this week with our examination of Pope St. Pius X's landmark encyclical, Pascendi Dominici Gregis. It was his encyclical published in the first decade of the 20th century, denouncing and defining and attempting to suppress the heresy of modernism. It's the most important papal encyclical probably of the 20th century, far outstripping anything else in terms of its impact on the church. As a result of this, a couple of years later, he would issue the Oath Against Modernism and continue doing a great deal of work against modernists, including stripping many bishops and priests of their offices and sending them packing because they held to heresies. Modernism is a synthesis of all heresies, and it was, unfortunately, only a few decades after this that the modernists would triumph in the aftermath of Vatican II. They would, they would even do away with the oath against modernism. And so we continue this today, looking at the essentially the democratization of the church, where the truths of the faith, including dogma, according to modernists, are based on the collective sentiment of the laity. If religious experience is, as we saw in a previous installment of this, based entirely on the individual experience of the believer, then the truths of the faith are essentially decided through a democratic process. If that sounds familiar, it should. That is the rallying cry of the Synod on Synodality. So let's take a look now at this landmark encyclical together, the next installment of it. A wider field for comment is opened when you come to treat of the vagaries devised by the modernist school concerning the church. You must start with the supposition that the church has its birth in a double need, the need of the individual believer, especially if he has had some original and special experience, to communicate his faith to others, and the need of the mass, when the faith has become common to many, to form itself into a society and to guard, increase, and propagate the common good. What then is the church? It is the product of the collective conscience. That is to say of the society of individual consciences which, by virtue of the principle of vital permanence, all depend on one first believer, who for Catholics is Christ. Now every society needs a directing authority to guide its members toward the common end, to conserve prudently the elements of cohesion, which in a religious society are doctrine and worship. Hence the triple authority in the Catholic Church, disciplinary, dogmatic, liturgical. The nature of this authority is to be gathered from its origin, and its rights and duties from its nature. In past times it was a common error that authority came to the church from without, that is to say directly from God, and it was then rightly held to be autocratic. But this conception had now grown obsolete, for in the same way as the church is a vital emanation of the collectivity of consciences, so too authority emanates vitally from the church itself. Authority, therefore, like the church, has its origin in the religious conscience, and that being so, is subject to it. Should it disown this dependence, it becomes a tyranny. For we are living in an age when the sense of liberty has reached its fullest development, and when the public conscience has, in the civil order, introduced popular government. Now these are not two consciences in man, any more than that there are two lives. It is for the ecclesiastical authority, therefore, to shape itself to democratic forms, unless as it wishes to provoke and foment an intestine conflict in the consciousness of mankind. The penalty of refusal is disaster. 
for it is madness to think that the sentiment of liberty, as it is now spread abroad, can surrender. Were it forcibly confined and held in bonds, terrible would be its outburst, sweeping away at once both church and religion. Such is the situation for the modernists, and their one great anxiety is, in consequence, to find a way of conciliation between the authority of the church and the liberty of believers. But it is not without its own members alone that the church must come to an amicable arrangement. Besides its relations with those within, it has others outside. The church does not occupy the world all by itself. There are other societies in the world with which it must necessarily have contact and relations. The rights and duties of the church towards civil societies must, therefore, be determined, and determined, of course, by its own nature, as it has already been described. The rules to be applied in this manner are those which have been laid down for science and faith, though in the latter case a question is one of objects, while here we have one of ends. In the same way, then, as faith and science are strangers to each other, by the reason of diversity of their objects, church and state are strangers by reason of the diversity of their ends, that of the church being spiritual while that of the state is temporal. Formerly it was possible to subordinate the temporal to the spiritual and to speak of some questions as mixed, allowing the church the position of queen and mistress and all such, because the church was then regarded as having been instituted immediately by God as the author of the supernatural order. But this doctrine is today repudiated alike by philosophy and history. The state must therefore be separated from the church, and the Catholic from the citizen. Every Catholic, from the fact that he is also a citizen, has the right and duty to work for the common good in the way he thinks best, without troubling himself about the authority of the church, without paying any heed to its wishes, its counsels, its orders, nay, even in spite of its reprimands, to trace out and prescribe for the citizen any line of conduct, on any pretext whatsoever, is to be guilty of an abuse of ecclesiastical authority, against which one is bound to act with all one's might. The principles from which these doctrines spring have been solemnly condemned by our predecessor Pius VI in his constitution, Octorum Fide. But it is not enough for the modernist school that the state should be separated from the church, for as faith is to be subordinated to science, as far as phenomenal elements are concerned, so too in temporal matters the church must be subject to the state. They do not say this openly as yet, but they will say it when they wish to be logical on this head. For given the principle that in temporal matters the state possesses absolute mastery, it will follow that when the believer, not fully satisfied with his merely internal acts of religion, proceeds to external acts, such, for instance, as the administration or reception of the sacraments, these will fall under the control of the state. What then will become of the ecclesiastical authority, which can only be exercised by external acts? Obviously, will be completely under the dominion of the state. It is this inevitable consequence which impels many among liberal Protestants to reject all external worship, nay, all external religious community, and makes them advocate what they call individual religion. If the modernists have not yet reached this point, they do ask the church in the meantime to be good enough to follow spontaneously where they lead her, and adapt herself to the civil form in vogue. Such are their ideas about disciplinary authority. Far more advanced and far more pernicious are their teachings on doctrinal and dogmatic authority. This is their conception of the magisterium of the church. No religious society, they say, can be a real unit unless the religious conscience of its members be one, and one also the formula which they adopt. But this double unity requires a kind of common mind, whose office is to find and determine the formula that corresponds best with the common conscience, and it must have, moreover, an authority sufficient to enable it to impose on the community the formula which has been decided upon. From the combination, and, as it were, fusion of these two elements, 
the common mind which draws up the formula and the authority which imposes it, arises according to the modernist, the notion of the ecclesiastical magisterium. And as this magisterium springs in its last analysis from the individual consciousness and the possesses its mandate of public utility for their benefit, it follows that the ecclesiastical magisterium must be subordinate to them, and should therefore take democratic forms, to prevent individual consciousness from revealing freely and openly the impulses they feel, to hinder criticism from impelling dogmas towards their necessary evolutions. This is not a legitimate use but an abuse of power given for the public utility. So too a due method and measure must be observed in the exercise of authority, to condemn and prescribe a work without the knowledge of the author, without hearing his explanations, without discussion, assuredly savors of tyranny. And thus, here again, a way must be found to save the full right of public authority on the one hand and of liberty on the other. In the meanwhile, the proper course for the Catholic will be to proclaim publicly his profound respect for authority and continue to follow his own bent. Their general directions for the church may be put in this way. Since the end of the church is entirely spiritual, the religious authority should strip itself of all that external pomp which adorns it in the eyes of the public. And here they forget that while religion is essentially for the soul, it is not exclusively for the soul, and that the honor paid to authority is reflected back on Jesus Christ who instituted it. And we saw there that even magisterial authority was under threat from the modernist conception of the imminence of the believers collectively coming together to decide what is true or what is not. Did you notice also a, an explicit demand of the separation of the church and the state? That is a position that the church had condemned up until the 1960s. Prior to that, the idea was that the church and the state should work together because the church believed in the social reign of Christ the King, as opposed to the concept of Christ King of the universe, which is a much more distant and vague concept as we hear in the church today. The social reign of Christ the King was central to the church's understanding of her role in the world, never having needed to be defined until the church had been pushed out of the public sphere entirely into, into the 1920s when Pope Pius XI would define that. I'm curious what you think of this, though. Do you see what he's talking about here in real life now, in, the, in our time, and in the last several decades? Do you see what he's talking about here with this democratization of the church, the undermining of magisterial authority, in the church and the state being utterly separate, including the right of the laity to not adhere to what the church has to say if they work in the public sphere. Let me know what you think of this in the comments, please. Hit like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help. So does sharing this on social media. That helps as well. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.